Let's begin with prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for all of your mercy and grace that we can uh, even have breath in our lungs to come here today and learn more about your word. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for all of your promises that because you're faithful to your covenant, your promises endure forever. Heavenly Father, help us think well upon the text now. Be with us. Help us to uh, not grow weary of always studying about the great kingdom that is to come. But let us believe these things, proclaim it, and to live accordingly. We ask that the word would have that effect in our lives here this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, now, I want to begin with a question that was really astute, I thought, last time. There was somebody asked me a question. They said, you know, when we're studying the book of Revelation, they expected to see graphs and charts about pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath, all these different terms. And we will get to those things, but I want to let you know the introduction is designed to get into hermeneutics, designed to get into how should we interpret the text. So it's not necessarily a theological introduction, although we touch on those things, but my primary purpose is to talk about how we interpret the text of Revelation. Now, remember last time I talked about the various approaches to interpretation? There are four main ones, and you'll see them in your notes. We're still on the same handout, by the way. The different approaches to interpretation are the historical, the idealist, the preterist, and the futurist. The first three, that is the idealist, historist, and preterist, all want to symbolize or use the, the book of Revelation in a highly symbolic way to either prove that the book of Revelation is all about the church age from chapters 4 to 22. That's the historist view. The idealist view is really identical, except they recapitulate the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. So they believe that the book of Revelation is really just about the battle between good and evil, whereas the preterist view wants to shoehorn the majority of the book of Revelation into 70 AD. Now, I'm going to show you, and this is the whole battle, is to show you that the futurist understanding or interpretive scheme is the best. And what I'm going to show you is that your approach really depends on the genre that you believe the book of Revelation was written in. Now, what is a genre? Well, all of you that have watched movies, you're aware of different genres. If you watch, remember, a, uh, take, for instance, a cowboy movie. You know the cowboy movie, the bad guys wear the black hats, and the good guys, they have their horses and the six-shooters, and they're always quicker on the draw. And at the end of the movie, what happens in a cowboy western? Where do they ride off into? The sunset. The sunset. <laughs> Why? Because that's the genre. That's the genre of movie. Well, there's different genres within the scriptures. And what I mean by that is there's different rules of interpretation because you and I believe in what's called the historical grammatical approach to interpretation. We want to understand the text literally. But when we understand the text literally, that means we take it in its intent, the intended way that the author had written it. In other words, we don't take a metaphor and press it too literally, right? Otherwise, we would have a non-literal interpretation. We'd be spiritualizing the text. We want to go with how the author has penned it. So here's what I want to lay out for you. First of all, apocalyptic genre. This genre is the favorite, notice, of idealists, historists, and preterists. Why? Because it uses symbols and imagery to convey information. Now, the apocalyptic literature was very, very prominent in the intertestamental period. 
Remember, that's the 400 years between the writing of the Old Testament, the last prophet Malachi, and John the Baptist coming on the scene. And so in those 400 years, you have people who are writing texts and assigning popular people's name to them. For instance, the book of Enoch. Was the book of Enoch literally written by Enoch, who lived thousands of years earlier? No. But somebody signed their name to it, and they wrote it in an apocalyptic genre, meaning they used a lot of symbols, and these symbols were never explained. And so the reader can look at those symbols and say, aha, this means that, this means this, and they can apply it any way they want. And therefore, they became very popular. If you had an enemy, your enemy was always the wicked symbols in the apocalyptic text. All right? Think about the apocalypse of Baruch. Who was Baruch? Well, he was the scribe of Jeremiah. So he was very popular, had a very popular name, but he had been dead for hundreds of years. So during the intertestamental period, because Baruch had such a famed reputation, somebody writes an apocalyptic piece signing his name to it. And what do they do? They have a bunch of symbols and a bunch of imagery that you can turn and twist any way you want. Here's what I want you to understand. The book of Revelation is not modeled after apocalyptic literature. Let me cite some differences. And by the way, I'm going to get you this handout. I'm going to get you this next time. But let me read you. This comes from a scholar named Robert Thomas. And here are some great differences between apocalyptic literature during the intertestamental period and the book of Revelation. First of all, the apocalyptic literature was written under a pseudonym. Remember I just mentioned some joker said, you know what, Baruch was famous, I'll sign Baruch to the name of this literature, and therefore people will take it seriously. The book of Revelation is not written under a pseudonym. It's written by the Apostle John, isn't it? Okay, so that's a major difference. Apocalyptic literature is pessimistic about the present. The book of Revelation really isn't. Why? Because Christ reigns. Christ is on the throne. It's not a pessimistic work. The apocalyptic literature has no epistolatory framework, meaning epistolatory, and I'll talk about that in a moment, is a genre written for a purpose. You and I read the general epistles in the New Testament. The old saying is we're reading somebody else's mail. In other words, Bob is showing us the book of Galatians. What was the issue at hand in Galatia? You had Judaizers coming in demanding that the church retreat back to the old covenant. Okay, that was the purpose of the writing. So an epistle is written for a purpose, to exhort people to do... uh, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, those at Thessalonica thought they were living during the day of the Lord. Paul writes for the purpose of showing, no, you're not in the day of the Lord. If you're in the day of the Lord, you'd be living and you'd see these things. Okay, that was the purpose. So apocalyptic literature had no epistle nature to it. The book of Revelation does. In chapters 2 through 3 of the seven churches, it's an epistle. There's few, if any, moral admonitions when it comes to the apocalyptic literature. There is many moral admonitions, especially repent, believe, those types of admonitions in the book of Revelation. In apocalyptic literature, the Messiah's coming is always purely future. But in the book of Revelation, his future coming is based, according to Revelation 5.10, on his past work, his shed blood at his first coming. Apocalyptic literature doesn't have that. Uh, Apocalyptic literature does not call itself prophecy. The book of Revelation, as I'll show you, does. The apocalyptic literature pretends to be prophecy, but it really only retraces history, whereas the book of Revelation really is predicting future events. 
And apocalyptic literature only concerns a future generation, whereas the book of Revelation concerns all generations for all time. So as you can see, there are a lot of differences between apocalyptic literature and the book of Revelation. Why do the idealists, historists, and preterists like the apocalyptic genre? Because they can take the symbols, they believe it's all a symbol, and they can turn it to mean anything they want. Let's take, for instance, what the amillennialists do with a thousand years in Revelation 20. An amillennialist is one who doesn't believe in a literal thousand-year reign of Christ. So in Revelation 20, when it says that we will reign with Christ for a thousand years, they say, well, that must mean something else. So they spiritualize it, and they say, well, you know, that's really being fulfilled now. It's not literally to be taken as a thousand years, but it really is a spiritual reference to the church age. Is everybody with me? Well, let me ask you this. What if it means we're going to reign with Christ for a thousand years? Okay, and of course, that's exactly what it means. Yeah, novel idea. <laughs> so it, that's why they like to say it's apocalyptic, but I'm going to show you that it's not. Primarily, the book of Revelation is actually a prophecy. Now, epistolatory, that's a letter, again, as I mentioned, written for a purpose. I just talked about that. The book of Revelation does contain that element, especially in chapters 2 through 3, when it's addressing specific issues with the seven churches. But it's also a prophetic book. Now, when we talk about prophecy, we want to talk about primarily two elements. There is both foretelling and also foretelling. Foretelling is this. The prophet calls you to faith, repentance, and obedience. Those three items. Why? Because salvation's by faith, and if you are a faithful person, you end up living that out. Okay, that's the foretelling. The prophet calls the people to obedience. Notice that in the book of Isaiah that we were studying so much back at TCF. Okay, now what's foretelling? Well, foretelling is the unique ability of the biblical writer to foretell the future and predict future events very specifically and very accurately because, again, there's a God in heaven who knows the future, and he has, in fact, inspired his prophetic authors. So these are the primary different genres that people argue about regarding Revelation. So the argument is, well, which is Revelation? Is Revelation primarily an apocalyptic literature, piece of literature, so we can just twist and bend it any way we want? Or is it more of a prophetic piece of literature where we can say, no, the symbols should be taken literally? Okay, that's what we're wrestling with. Now, let me explain why I think the futurist approach is the best. By the way, anybody have any questions before I move off of that? I'll, it's, I'm sorry, I, I missed the question. Oh, the prophetic? Yeah. Yep. It was all three of those, right? It is. Um, let me just back up. Good question. Here, here's what I want you to think about. Those who hold to the idealist, historist, and preterist approach say it's primarily apocalyptic with a little bit of epistolatory in it. What I'm saying as a futurist is, no, it's really primarily prophetic with a little bit of epistolatory and a little bit of ap apocalyptic in it. Okay, so it's the emphasis. Does that make sense? Okay, so what I'm going to do now is I want to show all of it. Yeah, Bob. Uh, from a lot reading a lot of this material, yeah, a lot of some people call it apocalyptic for the purpose of dismissing it as insignificant. Yeah, that's right. Generally, a millennial, millennialist, and so really, there's no reason to take any of it seriously. That's exactly. Maybe right. the letters to the churches, in some regard, or whatever. 
Yeah. And once you do that, just to dismiss it, then we have all this material that was written in Scripture for no good reason. Exactly. That's right. Yep. Jim has got a comment there. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy aloud. Blessed are those who hear and obey the things written in Exactly, and in fact, I'll, I'll show you that very verse. You're exactly right, Jim. So, and in fact, notice he calls it a prophecy in, in that passage. They read it aloud, that's right, and we'll be doing that. Yeah, amen. That's right. So what I want to do is show you, again, why is the futurist approach the primarily the best approach to the understanding of the book of Revelation? Well, because the book of Revelation is primarily a prophetic book. Let me just show you the verse that he just cited. Revelation 1.3, John writes, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy, and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Now notice again in Revelation 22.7, Revelation 22.10, 18 and 19, the book of Revelation, the author John declares that it's a prophecy. So if the apostle John is declaring it to be a prophecy, well then you and I should take note and see, you know, it's primarily a prophetic piece of literature. Now that doesn't mean there aren't other elements in it. But it really is a prophecy. You, don't have, well, you and I don't have to guess as to what kind of literature this is. The Apostle John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, has in fact told us. All right? Number two, the book of Revelation is obviously looking forward to the future of Daniel's 70th week for three reasons. Now remember, when we're talking about Daniel's 70th week, I laid that out as God's his, his programmatic verse or passage in Daniel 9 for his redemptive plan. And so when you're looking at the book of Daniel, think about three chapters that tie together. Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, and Daniel chapter 9. Because all three of those chapters tie in with this great kingdom that will come, that is the Messianic kingdom, after the world's kingdoms, the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Greek, and the Roman empires. All right? Now, how do we know that the book of Revelation is looking forward to Daniel's 70th week? Well, because... The book of Revelation is built off of Daniel 2.28, the very first verse. Daniel 2.28 in the Septuagint. This, by the way, does everybody know what the Septuagint is? When we put up LXX, that's just a symbol for the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So around 250 B.C., you had a bunch of Hebrew scholars that knew Greek well, and they lived in Alexandria, and what they did is they translated the Masoretic text, the, um, well, that's a, anachronistic, but they, they translated the Hebrew text into Greek. Okay? So that's what we're looking at here. Notice in Daniel 2.28, I know this is in Greek, and I did that deliberately because I want you to see the connection to Revelation 1.1. Notice the similarities. This is a relative pronoun. It literally is the things, and here's day. Remember we talk about the divine necessity, the things that must, and this is genestai, which is take place in or upon Eschaton, everybody's heard of eschatos. Eschaton is the last, last days, right? And here, here, here's days. So it's literally the things that must take place upon the last days. Now notice the identical phrase in Revelation 1.1. John has shown the things that must take place, but notice what's different. It's no longer in the last days, this phrase, but instead what is substituted is soon. It's imminent. Why? Why the change? Why the deliberate change 
under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, because you and I are living in the last days. What changed the first advent of Christ? So ever since the first advent of Christ, you and I are living with the (laughs) at-handedness of the kingdom of God. It literally is at hand. Okay, and so that's what's so exciting is the book of Revelation is saying these things are now imminent. They can break forth at any time. Right now, I have some cross-references. Turn your Bible. I want to show you that this phrase, especially notice what I have in black, the things that must take place. Ha, de, genestai. That phrase in English means the things that must take place. That forms the programmatic or the structure of the book of Revelation. So turn to Revelation 4. Remember, Revelation 4 all the way to chapter 22 is about the future. That's what I'm claiming. Turn your Bible to Revelation 4.1. Revelation 4.1. You'll see the very same phrase. John writes, he says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you the things that must take place after this. It's the identical phrase. The things that must take place. Okay, now, turn your Bibles to Revelation 22.6. Revelation 22.6, it says, And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must take place soon. It's, again, the same phrase that you see in Daniel 2.28 and Revelation 1.1. Now, what I've just showed you then is what brackets the entirety of Revelation chapter 4 to 22. The things that must take place. Now, we also have Jesus using that identical phrase in his all of it discourse. Now, what's significant about that? It shows that what Jesus is referring to primarily in his all of it discourse are the things concerning the future kingdom that's being talked about in Daniel 2.28 and also in the book of Revelation. In fact, Jim, you've got a, a quote there from Jesus in Matthew 24, 6 through 8. Yeah, Matthew. So I, I'm sorry, before you read it, have everybody turn to Matthew 24, 6 through 8. I want everybody to see this. It's more powerful when you hear him say it and you're also looking at your own Bible. Yeah, Matthew 24, 6 through 8. Now listen to what Jesus said. Again, this is the Olivet Discourse. Matthew 24, 6 through 8. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Make sure that you are not alarmed, for this must happen. But the end is still to come, for nation will rise up in arms against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of birth pangs. Okay, notice in verse 6, how did you translate that, um, the things that must take place? They must happen, I think, is what your version said. Make sure that you are not alarmed, for this must happen. Must happen, that's the identical phrase in Greek, the things that must take place. Okay, so if you had your Greek text, you would be identical. Okay, so the reason I mention that is it shows us that the Olivet Discourse is primarily looking forward to the events in the book of Revelation. In fact, notice he also talked about birth pangs. Birth pangs, as I'll show you later in our study, is a technical term that has to do with the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, as alluded to in Isaiah 13, verse 8, Isaiah chapter 26, and Isaiah 66, and also in Jeremiah chapter 30. Okay, so that's the day of the Lord. So this is why it's important. 
in Matthew and Mark, Jesus is primarily looking forward to the events in the book of Revelation, which is the future kingdom. Now, turn your Bibles to Luke real quick. Luke chapter 21, verse 9. I'm going to show you something. Luke is a little different. He focuses more on the 70 AD event, but you, he gives you a clue that he does. Matthew, or I'm sorry, Luke 21, 9. So again, Matthew and Mark are looking forward to the book of Revelation. The Olivet Discourse in Luke 21, it alludes to it, but it focuses more on the 70 AD destruction of Jerusalem. Notice in verse 9, Jesus says, When you hear of wars and tumults, do not be afraid. For these things, there's our phrase, must first take place. But notice it says, but the end will not come at once. So now he's saying that the end isn't here. Now, when you get to verse 10, all the way to verse 24, he talks about the 70 AD event, and then he telescopes back to the second coming, alluded to in verse 25. So, remember, you, when you and I are interpreting the Olivet Discourses, we want to understand the intent of the biblical author. So, Matthew and Mark are focusing almost purely on the future, whereas Luke is concerned more with the 70 AD event. Okay. But I want you to see that that term, these things must take place, are in the Olivet Discourses because Jesus is focused on the coming kingdom that's here in Revelation 1. So that phrase not only sets off then the whole book of Revelation in Revelation 1.1, but it sets up the future discourse from chapter 4 to 22. Okay, the things that must take place. Yeah, Peg. I didn't understand that because... When you just looked at Matthew 24, 6, was yep. that? Yeah. Didn't it have that same phrase, but the end is not yet? Isn't that the same phrase you just called out in Luke? Yeah, but he clue? ends up recapitulating. Yeah, good good question. Turn your Bibles back to Matthew 24. Let me show you how this works out. And by the way, when we get into Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, I'll be giving two messages on that, and I'll be getting into Matthew 24 specifically in that Matthew chapter 24, begin in verse 3. There's two questions that the disciples are asking. When will these things be? Uh, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? That last two, it seems like two questions, but it's really part of one. So there's two questions. Jesus, it says in verse 3, He sat in the Mount of Olives, and his disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming in the close of the age? And Jesus answered them. Now he's answering the second question first. Okay. What is the second question? What is the signs? He says, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Now notice what he goes on to say. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pangs. Now, Peg, notice that birth pangs comment. When you, when, do you see that in verse 8 of Matthew 24? Okay, that shows us that the focus here in Matthew is upon the future day of the Lord. Now, how do we know that? Because any time birth pangs, for instance, turn your Bibles to uh, 1 Thessalonians 5. This will kind of help prove it. I can go through all the Old Testament, but we can just point to Paul what he says. 1 Thessalonians 5. Just First uh, Thessalonians 5, start in verse 2. Notice he says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. 
Verse 3, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains. That's Odin, the same term that Jesus uses. So what's he referring to? He's referring to the day of the Lord. The same, the identical phrase in the Greek is used in Isaiah 13, 8, Jeremiah chapter 30, uh, Isaiah chapter 26, verses 6 through 7, and also Isaiah chapter 66. Okay, so that shows us that man. Now, what's interesting is continue on. Notice he goes in verse 9, he says, they will deliver you up to tribulation. This is Matthew 24, 9. They'll deliver you up to tribulation and to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my sake. And then they will fall away and betray one another, and many false prophets will arise and many lead many astray. And then it goes on. He says, and because lawlessness is increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So he takes you all the way to the end of the tribulation period. Remember, you even have angels that are proclaiming the gospel from heaven. The gospel literally will be proclaimed in the tribulation period to the ends of the earth. But now, Matthew recapitulates, and notice in verse 15, he goes back to the midpoint of the tribulation. Notice in verse 15, he says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel. So what he's done is he's transversed through the entire tribulation, but in verse 15, he says, let me bring you back to the midpoint. And then he talks about the abomination that causes desolation. That's why our understanding of Daniel 9 was so critical. If we get Daniel 9 wrong, we'll get Matthew wrong. And we show that Daniel 9 had to be interpreted looking future. Has the abomination that causes desolation ever occurred? No. That still is looking forward to the future. Yeah. But I'm not sure you answered the question, which was, I thought you were pointing out in Luke... 21 9 that the reason that is about 70 a.d compared to matthew 24 6 is the phrase but the end is not yet but they both yeah, have exactly. that phrase so that's but really my point what is, is he doesn't what luke does is he shows that he's breaking from there and then he's going to go to the 70 a.d event let me show you in luke 21 9 notice he says The time is at hand, do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, that's the same events that occur in Matthew 24, 3 through 6. Mm -hmm. Okay, then he says, but these things must first take place, but the end will not come at once. There's a contrastive conjunction that's saying, no, not, not the end. But now he goes in verse 10, he says, then he said to them, nation will rise against nation. Now that's what we already heard in the tribulation period. So that's neutral language. We don't know what he's referring to. It's either the 70 AD event or he's talking about the tribulation period, right? But he's going to be, make it very clear that he's talking about the 70 AD event, it's, whereas it's, Matthew made it very clear he's talking about the day of the Lord. But it's, yeah, it's the same phrase that Matthew uses, right? Exactly, but here's the difference. Notice it goes on down, all the way, skip down to, for instance, verse 24. Okay, you're in Matthew, or Luke 21, 24. He says, They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. Yep. And Jerusalem will be trampled under the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Right. I understand that Luke okay. is clearly about 70 AD. I just didn't understand yep. the phrase. So what, notice what he leaves out, though, is birth pangs. These are the beginning of birth pangs. Okay. I have to go back and look at Okay. It. So birth pangs is the kicker because what Matthew and Mark's remember, see, what Luke is doing is he's taking the 70 AD event and he's using that to telescope to the final days. Just as in 70 A.D., these nations will surround Jerusalem one day at the final eschaton, 
that'll happen again. And that's what you see in Luke 21, 25. So you're saying it's really not the phrase, but the end is not yet that's distinctive. You're saying the difference is... Well, it is, is significant to Luke. And here's why. Because Luke then immediately in verse 10, when he says the end is not yet, he's tipping you off that he was referring to the end prior to that. But then he goes and talks about things that will take place before that. Okay, and what is he referring to? He's referring to the 70 AD event. Does that make sense? He says, before these things, you're going to see that. (laughs) Not really. Okay. I I hear you saying that the difference is one is about birth pangs in Odin and one is not. But that phrase, they they sound very similar. So I'll have to look at it more quickly. Okay, sure. And we'll we'll cover it more when we get into Matthew 24. Yeah, Bob. The roots of prophecy are in history. And if you, uh, that things happen in history that God predicted isn't evidence that what's yet future we can just ignore or it's not going to happen. Right. And if you, and obviously Jesus referred back to the book of Daniel. Exactly. But if you look at the whole book of Daniel, there's a whole chapter of material about intertestamental things. Yep. The, uh, Alexander the Great. Yep, in chapter 11. Exactly. Yeah, Antiochus Epiphanes. Yep. All of these things were predicted. Yes. But it doesn't exhaust it. Exactly. It's because if it did exhaust it, what's Jesus doing talking about when you see what Daniel referred to? Exactly. So it could not have exhausted it. That's right. But even millennials wanted to just say it's all been done. It's all his, all prophecies, history, we're done with it. Exactly. So, and you know, Bob, you and, mentioned and when that you, uh, can't be true. Otherwise, Jesus is in air pointing us to a literal fulfillment of Daniel. You helped us out when you led us through the book of Luke. And one thing, Peg, that we want to do is always remember that these authors are inspired by the Holy Spirit to en- emphasize different aspects. So, what I'll show you is when we get into Matthew, the Matthew account is emphasizing the future day of the Lord. Okay. But what Luke is going to emphasize, he talks about that up to verse 9. But then from verse 10 all the way to verse 24, he shifts to emphasize the 70 AD. And then in verse 25, he goes back to shift to talk about the future day of the Lord himself. So there's just a different emphasis that the biblical writers had. 70 AD was a dress rehearsal. Exactly. It's a dress rehearsal. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Does that make sense? And and then we'll show all the the evidence. When you lay out the, the birth pangs idea and the fact that Matthew alludes to the abomination that causes desolation and Luke doesn't, all of a sudden, then you get the idea that, well, wait, Luke, is, has a different, Luke has a different focus than Matthew and Mark do. And that's the big kicker there. So I hope that helps. And we can, we can look back to it. So now, uh, anybody have any? Yeah. Uh, when Jesus refers to the abomination of desolation in Matthew 24, 15, isn't he authenticating the book of Daniel? He is, absolutely is. Yep, that's right. Again, the Roman onslaught, of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD did not fulfill the abomination that causes desolation. If you listen and read what Daniel 9 says of what this future, what we call the Antichrist, does in the abomination that causes desolation and what happens to him, that is not what the Vespasian or Tacitus or any of those guys did. Okay, so we know that in Matthew 24 and also in Mark 13, the focus is on the future day of the Lord. And Odin is another great hint at that. So, Okay, now, with that, let me turn to the second reason why we know that Revelation is primarily looking forward. Revelation 6 is built off of Jesus' Olivet Discourse. Matthew 24, 21 through 22, Jesus says about this time period, For then there will be a great tribulation, such has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. 
Let me throw this at you, Peg. Okay, as bad as it happened in 70 AD, could we not say that the Holocaust, the murder of 6 million Jews, was even worse than the destruction at 70 AD? And I think numerically we certainly could say that. Or someone might say the bubonic plague, there was many more deaths than that. But notice this is saying that this is the worst that there ever will be. And so this means that this is the worst that there ever will be. There isn't going to be anything worse than that. And that again shows us that Matthew and Mark are looking forward primarily, whereas Luke is looking to 70 AD. So now notice he goes on, he says, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. All right. So whatever period of time Matthew's talking about, or Jesus is talking about in Matthew, it's the worst ever. And if those days had not been cut short, when it says no life would be spared, no one would survive this time period. It was that, it's that bad. Right now, I'm going to expose a fatal flaw to the pre-wrath position. Okay, notice on the screen I have a little timeline. I'm trying to represent this last seven years. Here would be the beginning point of the tribulation. Here's the midpoint, three and a half years. And here's the end. The pre-wrath position, the fatal flaw to it, in my opinion, is this. It talks about the great tribulation. It has that rightly beginning at the midpoint. And that's what Jesus is talking about here, the great tribulation. But then notice it talks about this period being cut short. The pre-wrath position cuts the great tribulation short with the day of the Lord. Okay, so it divorces the day of the Lord from the great tribulation. Now remember, the great tribulation is so bad, it's the worst ever. And if those days had not been cut short, no flesh would survive. What does the pre-wrath position cut it short with? Something worse. The day of the Lord. I told Mike Hoffman one day, I said, it gets this simple to, re to refute pre-wrath. It's simply this. You can't have the worstest. Okay, if the period, the great tribulation is the worst ever, how can you cut that short with something even worse? You'd have the worstest. Would you not? <laughs> you can't have the worstest. You've already had the worst. You see, and so it's so simple. See, the pre-trib position says this. No, the day of the Lord begins at the beginning of the tribulation period. And therefore, the tribulation and the great tribulation are just facets within the day of the Lord. And yes, they're cut short, but the Lord has ordained that they'd be cut short at the seven-year mark or starting at the midpoint, the three-and-a-half-year mark. Does that make sense? You can't cut the worst time ever you can't cut it short with something worse. Okay, it's a fatal flaw to the pre-wrath position. All right? Now, here's what I'm driving at, though. Notice the inescapable logic of this text. The worst days will cause the death of a third of humanity. Where do we get that? Revelation 9.15. One day, a third of all of humanity will die. Has that ever occurred? Well, let's think about the bubonic plague. The worst plague to ever strike the earth in the 1300s killed under 20% of the entire population of the earth. Now, it devastated perhaps up to 50 to more, 50% of Europe, but it was still under 20% of the entire populace of the earth. But in the book of Revelation, it's saying that one day a third of the whole population is going to die. So that's never occurred. Now, what is Jesus talking about in Matthew 24? Well, he's talking about that very period, isn't he? The death of a third of humanity has not occurred. By the way, this is in a categorical syllogism. So the death of a third of humanity has not yet occurred. The worst days, therefore, have not yet occurred. Now, I did logic. I did this whole categorical syllogism thing at Andy's office. 
If you're interested, this is in valid form, so it's sound, or it's valid, I should say. And that means if my premises are true, and it's in valid form, the conclusion is necessarily true. So the only way, if this is in valid form, the only thing you can do is take issue with my premises. The first premise, would anyone take issue with that the worst days will cause a third of the death of humanity? Well, then you have to take issue with Revelation 9.15. Now you're having to disagree with Scripture. Second premise, the death of a third of humanity has not yet occurred. If you want to take issue with that premise, then I think you're arguing against history. Now the conclusion necessarily follows that the worst days have not yet occurred. Yet, what is Revelation about? In, in Matthew, it's about the worst days yet, ever. Okay, so follow in that, another syllogism. The worst days ever will occur in the future. Revelation refers to the worst days ever. Therefore, Revelation refers to what will occur in the future. It's inescapable. It's in valid form, and the only way someone can take a knock at this is to say your premises are faulty. But if my premises are true, and this is in valid form, my conclusions are necessarily true. So I would say it's necessarily true that Revelation refers to what will occur in the future. And that's been the whole reason we're doing this in the introduction, is to say, no, we have to interpret it looking towards the future, not towards the past or something fulfilled now. Is everybody with me on that? Okay, now let me move on. I'm going to just show you, here's a connection between Revelation 6. By the way, Revelation 6 is referring to the opening seal judgments. It's the beginning of the tribulation period. And I want you to see the correlation with the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. What's very interesting in Luke 21, though, is much of the information is used only referring to the judgment prior to or after 70 AD. Okay, but notice what we're going to look at. False messiahs, false prophets. That's in Revelation 6.2. You see it in Matthew 5.11, Mark 13.6, etc. Luke 21.8. Wars, international discord, famine, pestilence, persecution, martyrdom, earthquakes, cosmic phenomena. All those things are mentioned by, by the Lord in Revelation 6 and also by Jesus in the Olivet Discourse. So that shows us that the Olivet Discourse is looking forward to Revelation 6. What's Revelation about? The worst days ever. Okay, now we're going to come back to that. I just want, and you have this material and you can look at it on your own, but I just wanted to show you the correlation between Revelation 6 and the Olivet Discourse. Okay? All right, now, in Revelation 119, that declares that the book looks to future events. How so? Well, notice the schematic that John lays out for us. By the way, when Bob was teaching us the book of Acts, remember he brought us to Acts 1.8? And in that book, Luke lays out the program for the entire book. The disciples say, Jesus, when are you going to establish? Are you going to establish your kingdom to Israel now? And he says, it's not for you to know the times and the epochs set in the Father's hand, but you'll be in my, my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When you read through the book of Acts, it begins in Jerusalem, it goes to Judea, it goes to Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. The same type of programmatic verse. In other words, Acts 1 lays out the whole program for the rest of the book. Revelation 119 does the same thing here. Okay, Revelation 19, the Lord says to John, he says, Therefore write the things which you have seen, that's the past vision, the things which are, present condition of the church in Asia Minor, and the things which will take place after these things. Now, the reason I mention that is you don't have to guess. There are some people say, you know, there's a chiastic structure to the book of Revelation, or there's seven different 
uh, parts to it or there's 10 different parts, John gives you the layout of it. The things that were past, the things that are, and the things that are future. You and I don't have to wonder about how he structured his book. He gives it to us. Okay, so I think that's very helpful. And notice the majority of it has to do with future expectation. Okay, now let's talk about some interpretive principles. The first thing we have to be clear is that words and phrases should be taken in a straightforward way unless there are tip-offs pointing towards symbolism. Okay, in other words, let me show you some examples of this. Turn your Bibles, if you will, Turn your Bibles to Revelation 11, verse 8. What I'm going to show you is that when we come to symbols, there's three things we want to keep in mind. Number one, the context within the book of Revelation itself will explain what the symbol is. It'll say this is a simile, or it'll use the term spiritually. It'll tell you what it means. The second possibility is that it uses the Old Testament to tell you what it means. Or the third is it uses a simile referring to the Old Testament. So those are our three options. So let me show you an example of this. Revelation 11, verse 8. Notice it says, Their bodies, these are the two witnesses, will lie in the streets of the great city that is symbolically or literally spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. So notice the author, John, is saying that this is the city that is spiritually called Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, we know from passages in the Old Testament, like Isaiah 1.10, that Jerusalem was regarded as Sodom and Gomorrah. But notice John makes it very clear, this is where our Lord was crucified. Where was he crucified? He was crucified in Jerusalem. Okay, so even though he uses Sodom and Gomorrah, he even tips you off that he's using non-literal language. He says spiritually, panumakos, this is Sodom and Gomorrah the city where your Lord is crucified. So are you and I left to wonder what city this is? Can we make this city into any city we want to? No, we're told specifically, this is really a reference to Jerusalem. Okay? Now, let me talk, so that's the term spiritually. Pneumakos, sometimes it's used mystically, metaphorically, some versions have. Let me show you another example. Let me show you the term sign and how that's used to tip us off. Notice in Revelation 12.1, John tips us off that symbolism is being used, but then the Old Testament explains what the symbol is. Revelation 12, 1, it says, And a great sign appeared in heaven. Now, what is the sign? Well, it's a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head are crowns of 12 stars. Now, what's that, a re- a rep- what's that referring back to? Well, that's Genesis 37, 9. Remember, that was, um, you can write this down, Genesis 37, 9. That was Joseph's second dream where the sun and the moon are clearly Jacob and Rachel and the stars are a reference to the 12 tribes. Okay, so this is a reference to Israel. So who is the woman? It's Israel. And what does she give birth to later in chapter 12? Well, to the Messiah. And who tries to wipe out the Messiah? Satan does. He tries to wipe out the seed, okay? So the point is that term sign tips us off that, yes, we shouldn't take this literally, This woman represents something, and he tells us. Why? Because it's an allusion back to the Old Testament. And the Old Testament, so the point is we're not left wondering. We're not left guessing. It it can't mean just anything we want it to mean. It means something, definitely. That is, it's a reference to Israel. Okay? 
Now let me uh, show you a simile in how that works. Revelation 8.8. 8. Turn your Bible to Revelation 8.8. 8. Here's a simile. Remember, a simile is like or as. If you see a like or a as, that tips, tips you off that you can't take this too literally, that it's something is being compared to something else. So Revelation 8.8, 8, this is the seven trumpets here. It says, The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. Now, was it a great mountain that was thrown into the sea? No, it was like a great mountain. Now, what is it? Well, we're not exactly sure. It's something like a great mountain. Maybe it's a meteor. We don't know. But we can't say it's literally a great mountain. It's something like that. Now, are we told explicitly there? No, it probably doesn't matter. It's probably a meteor or something like that. But the point is the simile tells us that we can't take that too literally. It's not a literal mountain, but it's like a mountain. And it's being thrown into the sea. Does that make sense? So the simile explains that, hey, we can't press that too much. Now, let me show you some other things. I, I think this is fascinating. Let me show you how this works in Revelation chapter 20. Now, in Revelation chapter 20, we have this judgment that's going to happen, remember, upon Satan and the demons. Revelation 20, verse 2, John writes this. He says, And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now, notice the symbol, dragon. Now, remember, if you're holding to the idea that this is apocalyptic literature, many like to take the dragon and say it can mean anything. Well, notice we're told who the dragon is. The dragon is the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. Do you see how the text there tells us what the symbol is? We don't have to guess, right? So if someone says, well, the book of Revelation is so filled with symbols, how can you take that literally? We're told what the symbols are. And if we're not, like with that simile, it's really not that important. It's some large object, like a mountain, that's thrown into the water that kills a third of everything, <laughs> right? So here we're told. Now, here's the reason I have a 1,000 years highlighted. This is a text that starts talking about the millennial kingdom. Notice it says, and he was bound for a 1,000 years. Now, all millennialists say, a 1,000 years, you can't take that literally. Okay? Now, remember, anytime we come to a symbol, we either see a simile, it's like or as, we see the term a sign, or spiritually, or it's a reference to the Old Testament. And it explains what the symbol is. Now, do we have any of those things tipping us off that a thousand years should not be taken literally? No. In fact, notice, here, it talks about a dragon. Who is the dragon? Well, appositional statement, it's a serpent of old who is the devil and Satan. Well, when it comes to a thousand years, is there any descriptor like that? In fact, notice it goes on, Revelation 20, verses 3 through 6. He threw him into the abyss, that's Satan, and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for what? A thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for how long? A thousand years. Now, is there anything in the text to say that a thousand years should not be taken literally? Is there a, a, a word that says this is a sign or this is spiritually or is there a simile like or as? Is it a reference back to the Old Testament? Well, conceptually it is, but the thousand years isn't a reference to anything. In other words, there's no a thousand year reference specifically in the book in the Old, in the old Covenant. Okay, so the point is we take that literally. It means a thousand years. 
And anybody who says that it doesn't mean a thousand years, the burden of proof is on them. And if it doesn't mean a thousand years, then you see we've lost control of the Bible. It can mean anything. If you say, well, no, it refers to that church age. That's what the amillennialists are claiming. Well, where do they get that? Where in the context does it say that it refers to the church age, the age that we're living in now? We have nothing to go on. I had a um, professor teaching New Testament hermeneutics to us, and he was teaching us Greek once, and we came to a thousand years. And he says, you know what this means in the Greek? And we're all ears, all the students. Whoops, I lost my cord here. And you can imagine we're all listening with bated breath. Uh Uh-oh, he's got some heavy revy on what a thousand years is, you know. And uh, he said, what that means in the Greek is it's a thousand years. <laughs> That's all it means. I've heard Bob, I love it when Bob says it means what it says. That's, there's no other rule to tip us off. Okay, so I think that's a good act. Now, let me show you another example. Here in Revelation chapter 1, here you have uh, Jesus talking to John. He says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to, with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In his right hand, he had seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun. Now, notice the like. I forgot to even mention that. Like the sun shining in its strength. Is it literally the sun shining in its strength? No, it's like that. It's a simile. Okay, now, you and I are saying, well, what in the world are the golden lampstands and these seven stars? You know what? John tells us when Jesus, through John, Revelation 1.20, and for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are what? The angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Do we have any of that when it comes to a thousand years? No. So how should we take a thousand years? We should take it as a thousand years. Yep, you got it. Now, let's talk about the structure of the apocalypse. apocalypse. I'm almost out of time here, but I think I can get into it. The structure of the apocalypse also points to God being responsible for all the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments. Here's what I mean. In Revelation 4, you're going to have something called storm theophany. Just as God demonstrated his power and his divinity on Mount Sinai, he does the same thing in the book of Revelation, and he does so to demonstrate that all the things that proceed in the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls, they proceed from him. He's ultimately the one who is responsible for the wrath that's poured upon the world, and the world is in fact his. So notice in Revelation 4 or 5, it says, out from the throne. Notice where it's from. From the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are, it explains, the seven spirits of God. Okay, so that's the spirit of God there. So here we have the storm theophany showing, just as God did at Mount Sinai, he demonstrates his power and his divinity. Now here's why it's important. There's a structure in the book of Revelation that stems from this. When you come to the seventh seal, remember you have seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. Anytime you get to a seven like the seventh seal, that opens up to the bowl judgments or the trumpet judgments. You come to the seventh trumpet, that opens up to the bowl judgments. But every time you come to a seven, like in Revelation 8, 5, it talks about the storm theophany. It'll talk about the peals of thunder, etc. Okay, you see the same thing, the seventh trumpet and the seventh bowl. Now, why is that important? Well, the conclusion, I think, is that all these judgments are what? The wrath of God. They all proceed from him. 
Now, why is that important in our understanding of eschatology? Well, again, there's a movement called pre-wrath that says, no, the seals, the seal judgments are not the wrath of God, the first six seals. Well, based on what? <laughs> if the storm theophany structure shows that all the seals, all the trumpets, and all the bull judgments come from God, well, then shouldn't we conclude that the wrath associated with it is from God, too? It's not just from man. Yeah, Bob. Yes, uh, I think as you read the whole scripture, this seven-year period is indeed God's wrath being poured out on those who don't want to listen to God. Yep. And to say, well, it's not wrath, it's just special pleading. I don't know if we covered that in yeah. logical fallacies. Right, yeah, they don't have a case. We were talking about that on the radio about the something I heard in seminary. Yeah. Special pleading says, yeah, well, well here's... The, the general principle, but this one doesn't apply just because I say it doesn't. <laughs> That's a logical fallacy known as special pleading, right. and it's not valid. That's right. Thank you. Yeah, amen. So this structure is something you want to keep in your mind, that any time you come to a seven, seven seal, seven trumpet, seven bull, you're going to have the storm theophany that links all these things to God and his throne. Now let's talk a little bit more about some interpretive principles. Number three, Revelation builds heavily off the Old Testament. Timeless principles true then are still true today. Look at Revelation 6, 8. This is the opening seal judgments. John says this, he says, I look and behold an ashen horse and he who sat on it had the name Death and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. Okay. Now, Jim, you had, or some, oh, I'm sorry, Brian. Brian, you had Ezekiel 14, 21. Everybody turn your Bibles to Ezekiel 14.21. Now, before you read this, and as everyone's turning to Ezekiel 14.21, the Lord promised all the way back in Deuteronomy 32 that if Israel broke covenant with Yahweh, he would send four things upon them, sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. And it was, in fact, the very wrath of God. What's interesting is in the book of Revelation, remember, now he's going to save Israel, and so the wrath of God comes upon the whole world, and so the irony is now he's pouring his means of wrath, not just upon Israel because of their covenant breaking, but upon the entire world. Okay, so read Ezekiel 14.21. For thus says the Lord God, how much more when I send my four severe judgments against Jerusalem, sword, famine, wild beasts, and plague to cut off man and beast from it. Thank you. Literally, word for word, the same in Ezekiel 14, 21. Now, back up one. Remember you had, uh, was it verse uh, 18 or 20 with the wrath? Do you see it there? Uh, 19? Yeah, maybe it's verse 19. Send a plague against the country? It'll probably be, uh, maybe it's in verse 20. It talks about the wrath. This is the wrath of God. Yeah, 19. 19, yeah. Or if I should send a plague against that country and pour out my wrath in blood on it to cut off man and beast from it. That's fine. So all I want you to see is it was the wrath of God then. Now the pre-wrath rapture, when they see a passage like this, they say, well, this is only the wrath of man. This is not the wrath of God. Okay. So I want you to be aware of these arguments that if this is the wrath of God back in the Old Testament, why is it no longer the wrath of God now? The argument pre-wrath puts forward is to say, well, this is a judgment that comes at the hands of men, the hand of the nations. 
Well, in Isaiah chapter 10, the Lord used his wrath by sending the Assyrians upon the people of Israel. So all the nations that are used by God are really instruments of his wrath. And so if this is the wrath of God in the Old Testament, by what grounds do we say it's not the wrath of God now? And as Bob said, the only grounds they have is special pleading. Okay, so I'm just mentioning that again because pre-wrath has had such great inroads into evangelicalism today, but I don't think it's been well thought out. Okay, so if it's the wrath of God back then, it still is today. Now, with that, I'm going to take any questions or comments that anyone has. We've probably got a few minutes here. The big picture I want you to leave with as you head out the door is if you come to a symbol, the Old Testament is going to tell you what that symbol is, or it's going to be a simile, or you'll be tipped off in the context of Revelation itself or to tell you that this is a sign or this is something spiritually to be understood and it'll define it for you. Like, remember the seven lampstands and the seven stars? It'll explain what those things are. So, now this, is a, this is something I haven't understood for a long time because in one part of the Bible, in Revelations, they mention one-third of humanity is being killed and then in the other part they talk about one-quarter. So I was trying to figure out, so first one-third was killed and then one quarter of the two-thirds left were killed? Or yeah, what does it mean? Good, good question. In Revelation 6, 8, we just see here that a fourth of the earth is killed. When you get to Revelation 9, 15, then a third of the earth is killed. So that's one reason why we know that the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls are not just recapitulating the same judgment. It's progressively getting worse. Okay. Now, do we take a fourth of the earth and say, okay, a fourth plus a third? Or is it, okay, a fourth of the earth is killed and then it's just a third of those that are left that are killed? I don't know. We're not specifically told, but it's a large number of people. And the big picture is that's never occurred yet. Even in the bubonic plague, that was well under 20% of the earth's population. And so you can imagine the type of catastrophe this will be. So that certainly then points to Matthew 24. These are the worst days ever, right? Unless those days had been cut short, no flesh would survive. Well, obviously, that must be in the future because that's never happened. Okay, yep. Well, good question, yeah. So we'll, we'll wrestle with that a little bit. Uh, yeah. Yep. Um, don't a lot of people try to use Second Peter 3.8 where it says that a single day is like a thousand years with the Lord and a thousand years are like a single day to read something into Revelation that isn't there? Yeah, amen. Um, in, the, the issue between Peter and the book of Revelation are completely different. The context has to define what a thousand years means. The point that Peter has there is you have scoffers that are saying, where is his coming? We can live any way we want because this Jesus isn't coming back to intervene. Look how long it's been. You guys keep saying it's imminent. It's been on and on and on. Well, his whole point is to say, no, it's not, it's not uh, long at all to the Lord. A day is like a thousand years. So he's using it just to say, look, the Lord is timeless because he's eternal. The delay in time is only for our benefit because he wishes none to perish, as he says in 2 Peter 3.9. So the point in Revelation, however, is that the thousand years is referring to this great messianic age where the people of God, as it says in Revelation 5.9, will reign literally where upon the earth, or 5.10. Yep, okay, we're out. Well, God bless you. So next time, now we got through it, woohoo, we're actually going to get into the text itself. Revelation 1, 1 through 3, that's the preface of the prologue. Please read those three verses, Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and we'll cover that. Uh, there'll be two messages just on that section. So.